0: Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me your host Dr Jonathan Sakia. This week I'm joined by Eileen Tan, Associate Professor at the University of Leeds School of Medicine, Director of Research and Innovation at the Leeds Teaching Hospitals National Health Service Trust and Honorary Consultant Rheumatologist at Chapel Allerton Hospital, all here in the UK of course. In this episode, Eileen and I will be discussing how she got into both rheumatology and academia by accident, can't wait to hear that, her research interests and of course, Eileen's wishes for global healthcare. Eileen Tan obtained her medical degree from the University of Cork in Ireland and has been working in academic rheumatology in Leeds since 2001. She received the Young Investigator Awards from both the British Society for Rheumatology and the Asia-Pacific League of Associations for Rheumatology and was one of the first National Institute for Health and Care Research, or NIHR, clinical lecturers. Eileen has also been honoured with the NIHR Clinician Scientist Award for her work studying high-resolution MRI with regard to the role of ligaments in symptom and anatomic expression, as well as diagnosis of osteoarthritis in the hand. When Eileen isn't practising medicine or teaching, she's a keen sportswoman and has completed six marathons, raising an amazing amount of money for a variety of charities. She's also cycled from Leeds to Paris, a journey of 500 miles, astonishingly deciding to sign up. And this cracked me up when she didn't even own a bike and couldn't even ride. Absolutely priceless. And as if that wasn't enough she's currently on a daily running streak of wait for it a thousand days pretty impressive so it's wonderful to have Eileen Tan here with us today and i look forward to hearing more about her career and research welcome to the podcast Dr Eileen Tan
1: thank you Jonathan i am delighted to be here
0: you know um i was just when i was reading about all your achievements and thinking about the running I, I got the same sense of awe uh, that I did when I learned that uh, the comedian Eddie Izzard had I think completed 25 or 26 consecutive marathons. And here's you, a busy scientist and clinician, and you're, you're putting, well, certainly putting me to shame. So anyway, you qualified as a rheumatologist and you've been working, as I said, in academic rheumatology for over 20 years but you say that you fell into rheumatology by accident and then again into academia by accident. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: Yes, of course, Jonathan. Well, um, so I went into medicine because I wanted to be a psychiatrist, specializing specifically in psychotherapy. So naturally I went to medical school and, and I was on the right trajectory to becoming a psychiatrist. At the end of my qualification, someone suggested that I should probably do some general medicine before I specialise in psychiatry. So I did. I went into general medicine. I was in what's then called a senior house officer rotation, which included six monthly posts in a number of um, specialties. At the interview, I did have the option of choosing which combination of jobs to do this training in. And I chose the only combination of rotation that had accident and emergency within it because I know that I didn't want to spend a career doing accident and emergency, but I wanted to have some experience within it. So I chose that combination of rotation, which happened to be the only combination that had rheumatology in it. So there I was spending six months in a variety of medical specialties, including cardiology, renal medicine, elderly care, et cetera. And I absolutely enjoyed every single six-month rotation I was in. And of course, I did rheumatology then. And I I did it at a time when treatment suddenly escalated in terms of what we can offer patients then. So I remember putting in the first intravenous cannula in the patient who was receiving the 1st anti NT-TNF biology treatment for rheumatoid arthritis in the hospital I was working in. And that was historical and momentous. And the rest, as they say, was history. And, and I just fell in love with rheumatology um, for a whole host of a number of reasons. And then I decided to specialize in rheumatology and I applied to, to do specialist training in rheumatology. That's when I came to Leeds, but Sadly, or maybe not sadly, I didn't get the training post in rheumatology in Leeds. But during the interview, because of um, my intercalated medical science um, bachelor degree when I was in uh, medical school, I was offered the opportunity to do research. Now, I, I came to the interview with the idea that I wanted to be a doctor, a real doctor in rheumatology. Never have I thought about doing research at all. But then I learned to take opportunities um, when they are offered. So I did. I took the opportunity, and there I was. I fell into research by accident. I fell into rheumatology by accident.
0: Hmm. And you know, it's it, it's interesting. I often often hear origin stories and people talk about having been influenced by someone. Certainly, for my my case, uh, it was a number of very inspirational surgeons who I saw as a medical student who, who sort of changed my trajectory because I thought I was going to be either a forensic scientist or a pharmacologist. Or it's at the time where something really exciting is happening. Um, and, you know, your specialty, I think back to my medical school days, my goodness, what can be done for patients with these uh, the diseases you see compared to them. And we're going to get into that. So you were one of the first NIHR uh, clinical lecturers um, following your work using MRI, as I said, to investigate anatomical factors in inflammatory and degenerative arthritis and mechanisms of damage. Tell us about that project, please.
1: Sure. I think it happened at a very fortunate time for me because, um, as I said, as you said, I was one of the first NIHR clinical lecturer in in 2006 when NIHR was established um, to encourage academia and opportunities for research. So this particular research um, was using high-resolution MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, to scan arthritic joints so that I can understand the pathogenesis of arthritis. so I focused my research on the small joints of the hands because these are commonly affected in a variety of arthritis, whether it's inflammatory arthritis like the, the more commonly known rheumatoid arthritis um, or psoriatic arthritis and the degenerative arthritis known as osteoarthritis. So I was able to look at different structures within such a small joints with the very high resolution MRI um, and looking at the de- the, the ligaments, the tendons the bones and the soft tissue around it to see how they are affected when they're affected, who gets them and and to understand how they come about.
0: okay so you, you've supervised several research projects including uh, you served as a principal investigator in a number of clinical trials and even though we've we've primarily got a medical audience, a lot of folks who are not doctors listening so please, For the benefit of those who don't know about how research in general gets planned and executed, tell our listeners a little bit about that, please, and how you got involved in in projects, um, maybe using one as an example.
1: Sure. So I think all research and all good research come um, from a good idea or, in fact, a good question. And that comes from issues that we have with either a lack of understanding of certain condition or a lack of treatment. So projects start with with what's called a hypothesis. So a hypothesis is often um, an idea of something that uh, may be true, that you're trying to prove, you're trying to show the evidence that this is true. So the idea then becomes a plan. Um, a plan of how you're going to execute the project to come up with the evidence to confirm your hypothesis. So once you have the plan, um, very often clinical or medical research involves patients and participants volunteering to um, help alongside the research. So therefore, it often has to go through an ethical board approval to ensure that the research method is robust the patients and the participants are safe within this research, um, and, and that the integrity of the outcome or the results can be substantiated by the, the data. So once that's approved, um, we as part of the process we need to ensure that the infrastructure, um, facilities, the personnel involved, the team, I guess, the research team is there to ensure that the research goes on in Uh, a manner that it will complete on time and recruit to the target of whatever number of participants you need or or whichever criteria you need to to, um, adhere to. So the research happens, the data is collected. And then finally, analyzing the data is another important bit and understanding the data. So once that's done, the next process is um, writing up the results and the report and publishing it so that the research, the project and the outcome can be shared um, to the wider public, and that could include patients and other researchers and health professionals. So I think that's how research comes about in a nutshell.
0: I think it's important, again, and of course, you know, some physicians who are other medical professionals may not have engaged um, firsthand in any research, and you know, magically a paper appears in a journal. I think it's also important to say that such papers are sent out for peer review and that there's um, a period of time between submission and publication, and then the findings get debated in the pages, and then people you know, double test the hypothesis by repeating the research, because that's the basis of good science, isn't it? Is it repeatable? So, you know, one of the challenges from, and I've been involved in journals um, over over the years, if you're doing something groundbreaking, how the heck do you get it peer-reviewed? Because by that means, you know, it gets sent out to other people who are experts. But if you're the biggest name in the field, how does it get peer-reviewed? It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so so that's an interesting dilemma. So, um, so I'm the editor in chief for an open access rheumatology journal. So I'm heavily involved in the day to day reviewing of papers, including selecting potential appropriate peer reviews for papers. And you're absolutely right. Even articles submitted from um, from very senior, experienced authors, it can be challenging, but not impossible, because that's the purpose of the peer review process. No matter who you are, what seniority or, uh, you are, the work still has to be of quality and the peer reviewers equally have a responsibility of ensuring that whoever or wherever the study comes from, the integrity of the results needs to be as robust and useful ultimately for science, medicine and patients.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's look at an example of something you've published. A few years ago, you co-authored a paper entitled The Need for Biological Outcomes for Biological Drugs in Soriatic Arthritis. Could you sum up the key findings of the project and maybe even just start with, for those who aren't familiar with psoriatic arthritis, and what what's meant by the need for biological outcomes for biological drugs?
1: Um, sure, yes, of course. Um, so that particular paper is an editorial. I co wrote with um, Professor McGonagall, and it was um, an editor- editorial based on an article in the same issue on MRI in psoriatic arthritis. So, what is psoriatic arthritis? It is an inflammatory arthritis. That means that um, there is inflammation involved in the body to create inflammation within the joint, um, resulting in arthritis. And what that means for patients is that they may get stiffness in the joints, swelling, pain, and as a result of all that, discomfort, um, disability. Psoriatic arthritis is interesting because, as the name suggests, it also often involves the skin in, in which that patients have a type of rash called psoriasis. Psoriasis can also affect the scalp and the nails, So there are a variety of tissues in the body that can be affected in psoriatic arthritis. One of the unifying pathology within psoriatic arthritis is an entity called enthesitis. That means that it's inflammation of a structure called enthesis. An enthesis is a structure where um, it describes the attachment of the ligament, tendon or joint capsule to bones. That is the origin of the inflammatory process in psoriatic arthritis. Now I have described a number of changes now in the pathogenesis psoriatic arthritis. This is the basis of why the, the editorial describes the difficulty in coming up with the perfect outcome for this disease when studying biological therapy. So, the perfect therapy for psoriatic arthritis needs to treat all these structures the joint the entheses the nails the skin but you can imagine therefore the outcome measure to measure all this is quite tricky as a result not surprisingly in psoriatic arthritis the number of outcome measures is increasing over the years because it needs to measure all these structures so the editorial suggests that using mri it's at that time probably the best overall outcome measure because it can look at the tissue and it includes the bones, the entheses the ligaments and the tendons. So therefore, it's able to look at all the relevant tissues in this particular disease. Um, whereas immunologically, it may be tricky to come up with a unifying outcome measure.
0: Isn't there an issue, though, with... Um... You know, I don't know a healthcare system in the world that isn't cost-constrained, and there's already a massive demand on MRI machines. If this were to become a standard, how would uh, how would a healthcare care system sort of provide that resource?
1: Very good question, Jonathan. So I think the study that I allude to is used for research purposes, and it was aimed to to understand how. MRI could help understand the outcome of using treatment, which structures, which anatomy, which part of the disease is it treating. In the real world, in clinical practice, um, you're quite right, it may not be feasible to use MRI to measure outcome, and there may not need to be that extent of measuring outcome.
0: Interesting. So your activities, as I said in the introduction, have led to some awards, Young Investigator Awards from both the British and Asia Pacific uh, folks, amazing achievements. Talk, talk to us a little bit about what part of your work led to those um, those awards. And this is an opportunity for you not to be humble. Please tell <laughs> us. It's always teamwork. There's always people. You know, it's kind of like the Oscar speeches. Not looking for that, but really, just tell us what you did, what you brought to the table, Island.
1: Yeah, so um, the BA, the- Our Young Investigator Investigator Award was um, quite special for me because it was based on my very first research using MRI in rheumatoid arthritis, metacopal phalangeal joints, which is the knuckles in the hands. It uses a software that looked at quantitative MRI and looking at the pixels of the MRI to understand the distribution of inflammatory changes in the ligaments and the soft tissue. And that led to the finding that there is a disproportionate amount of inflammation in different sites of the knuckles within the hand joints, likely related to the anatomy of the pull of the tendons and the ligaments in the hands. It's really fascinating. So you may have heard about a a description called ulnar deviation um, of the metacarpophalangeal joints, which is when the fingers... Um, deviate towards one side because of product changes due to arthritis. And that's a reason why they go one way and not the other because of the anatomy of the finger joints. So the study basically tells us where and why inflammation happens. And it's fascinating because it's related to how the anatomy influences the change. So the the British Society for Rheumatology Young Investigator Award was based on my first research. And I was really proud of that because it, it was just you know, I, I was a really junior researcher, and that was just an enormous impact on the rest of my research career. The APLA Young Investigator Awards, the Asia-Pacific um, Young Investigator Awards, was related to that, but this time, I used high-resolution MRI, and this is studying osteoarthritis, the IP joint, that's the distal interphalangeal joint, that's the joint next to the fingernail. So, you can imagine, this is a very, very small joint, so requiring high resolution imaging to see the tiny structures around that. I was able to look at the collateral ligaments, which are by the side of the joints that hold the joints in place, how they get affected in very early osteoarthritis and sort of they mystify the um, concept of osteoarthritis being a cartilage disease. If you like, we now know, and there's increasing evidence since then, to describe osteoarthritis as an organ disease because it doesn't just affect the cartilage; it can also affect the ligaments, of course, but the bones as well as the tendons. So I think it's MRI. MRI has been my good friend all throughout my research career, and that's the um, basis of the, those two awards.
0: Okay, so I actually remember on the deviation. It's one of the few things I do remember. Um, and you know, this thing that physicians do when you're out and about traveling is looking at people and you know who you notice things and think, "Oh, I wonder if that's such and such." So, can you tell us your thoughts about how patients can best be helped, supported, to accommodate to the new version of themselves, and what the new choice of drugs can truly achieve? So. Have at it. The floor is yours.
1: Yeah. So, um, rheumatoid arthritis um, can be a disabling condition for patients, and particularly when we see them in clinic, the first presentation is pain, pain, and and pain from whatever causes, whether it's rheumatoid or any other causes, can be quite uh, unpleasant. So, I think part of the management and treatment of this condition is to help the patients understand the disease and manage the expectation of how they could get better and how they can help themselves. So part of the understanding of the arthritis, like rheumatoid, is that it doesn't just involve involve the joints. Yes, the joints is uh, a problem, but it is ultimately a systemic condition. It involves inflammation, So inflammation in the body can cause people to feel unwell. So fatigue being a major and probably quite a difficult aspect of rheumatoid arthritis to treat. So I think it's explaining the basis of the condition to the patient and what they can expect and try to sort of connect the other symptoms that they may have that they may not realise is connected to rheumatoid arthritis. So I think spending a lot of time providing information and education about the condition is absolutely important. And I think for patients to understand the basis of the condition is really empowering. Once that's provided, I think so clearly the patients need to know what can be done to help. There are a lot of treatment now. So as I said, Over 20 years ago, I put in the first intravenous cannula for biological therapy. We now have more than a dozen options of these available. Patients can have opportunities to get really good treatment. So I often say that once the diagnosis is made, the good news is we can now start the journey towards getting them feeling better. The condition can affect not just the joints or the person, but family, work, enjoyment, hobbies, so the lifestyle can be affected. But it doesn't mean that they are disabled just because they've got the diagnosis. A lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis lead a very, very healthy, enjoyable, normal life. And I think the reassurance that just because they have arthritis, they aren't gonna be in a wheelchair is very, very important. So other than medical therapy, There are a lot of lifestyle adaptations that can help. Um, Stopping smoking is important because there's evidence that smoking can promote the development of rheumatoid arthritis. And healthy diet, exercise is equally important. And increasingly, we recognise the importance of working, occupation. So helping people to stay in work if they are at work um, is very important for both the physical and mental health. So I think the short answer to that would be providing as much information about the condition, answering questions that patients may have about the conditions and medication, and supporting patients throughout the journey um, with regards to the arthritis.
0: Yep, okay, all makes perfect sense. So you sit on the steering committee for the Movement and Physical Activity Network at the University of Leeds and collaborate with Leeds Beckett University on physical activity research. And as I said in my opener, you are the poster girl for that really, aren't you? Two of your current research interests are the impact of health conditions on physical activity and conversely, the effects of physical activity on health. Come on, give us some more information about this research you're undertaking and the benefits exercise offers to your patient group.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I'm really, really grateful that at the University of Leeds, physical activity is high on, on the agenda. So we have this group that I um, I sit on, as you mentioned. Um, and the aim of the group is to foster collaborative research um, and um, work towards um, improving physical activity for everyone. So the most recent research that I have been involved with regarding physical activity together with Leeds back at university is involving patients with with rheumatoid arthritis. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, in rheumatoid arthritis, lifestyle changes is important. Um, Pain in rheumatoid arthritis can affect patients' ability to exercise, but we also recognise that physical activity and exercise is very important in all of us, but also in patients with arthritis, including rheumatoid arthritis. So the the, the study that uh, that you mentioned um, involves investigating how feasible it is for patients with rheumatoid arthritis to to engage in exercise. The outcome is that, interestingly, um, exercise do not worsen patients' arthritis. And I think that's important to mention because a lot of people feel that Um, because they have joint problem, they have arthritis, they are worried that if they move and they exercise, they might hurt more, they might do damage to their arthritis or their joints. But the converse is actually true in a controlled manner. So we do encourage exercise in all our arthritis patients, whatever they can do in terms of physical activities, we encourage um, because It does help the mobility, the flexibility and strengthening the muscles, which holds the joint in a stable position, therefore reducing stress in the joints and potentially reducing symptoms. So I think reassuring patients that exercise is good for them. Yes, it may ache a little more after exercise. We all ache after exercise. So therefore, it is very normal. And this period of aching don't last, they do subside. So therefore, it it is possible for patients, even with arthritis, to exercise on a regular basis. And another research that we did recently, and of course, the pandemic had influenced a lot of our research. And one of the research we did was to look at patients with arthritis and their physical activity level. And we compared that with patients who has no arthritis. The difference between the two groups is the level of physical activity for a number of reasons. So patients with rheumatoid arthritis over the pandemic involved less physical activity in their life lifestyle compared to people with no arthritis. And this is because of a number of barriers. One of the major barriers is access to facilities um, to exercise. Now, you may argue that this is not surprising during lockdown because everything was closed, no gyms were open. But the difference is still more significant in patients with rheumatoid arthritis compared to those without rheumatoid arthritis. So the other thing to say is that we don't have to go to the gym to exercise. There is a lot of creative way of exercising without needing to go to the gym. We don't need any equipment. So there's a variety of exercises that can be done at home, at the patient's own pace um, for their own benefit. And I think most importantly, something that people enjoy doing will be more ben- beneficial because it ensures that people are likely to engage more in those activities that they enjoy doing. So finding a form of exercise, be it swimming, walking in the park, or whatever they enjoy doing, will be a good way of realistically encouraging people to continue with regular physical activity.
0: Yeah, makes perfect sense. I remember hearing a while, a good long time ago, about school districts, actually in the United States, complaining about not having any money. And that was why children, why the obesity epidemic was growing in children, because there was no money to buy exercise equipment in schools, I'm thinking, what, what? They can run around in the playground you know, kick a tin can, for goodness sake. Um, just be active. Absolutely. So you're a, you're an honorary consultant rheumatologist um, at a hospital, as I mentioned. You've got a major role in your department's Rheumatoid Arthritis Disease Research Program, which has a great acronym, RADAR, Rheumatoid Arthritis Disease Research. I love that. Um, for, for early inflammatory arthritis. Can you tell us a bit more about this program, its aims and achievements thus far? And where you want to take it.
1: Yeah, so the radar program, it's an opportunity to understand inflammatory arthritis, which includes rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis, and a number of other inflammatory arthritis better. So we offer patients the opportunity to participate in in this research in that it allows us to collect information in an anonymized way to understand the trajectory of patients journeys. So it is important that we understand how the diagnosis of these conditions come about and how patients respond to a variety of treatment. So we collect information about disease activity, their medication journeys, a bit about the diet and then exercise. So I think it's to understand how patients come about with their diagnosis and how we can improve our treatment. Um, It then provides a repository of valuable information in a variety of settings that we can dwell into in terms of answering questions. So we're able to look at how physical activity levels affect patient's disease how quickly people with arthritis need to change medication or in fact do the diagnosis change because sometimes patients are diagnosed with what's called undifferentiated inflammatory arthritis um, and then they become rheumatoid arthritis as they progress so there's a lot of questions still to be answered even though we understand a lot more over the years there's still so many questions to answer because um, this is the basis of how we now have so many biological treatments that we can offer our patients compared to once upon a time when when we only have a handful of treatments.
0: Yeah. I remember again, going back to when I qualified, it was basically a few anti-inflammatory drugs, some of which aren't on the market anymore. And um, warm wax, I seem to remember putting your painful joints in warm wax my granny used to do. Is, is that still used?
1: Warm wax is still used. It, it feels great for patients when they're using it, but it's mainly symptomatic and you know, um, it's, it's complementary to the other treatment that we offer patients.
0: Right. Well, as we're about to wrap up, I love asking this question. If you were granted three wishes in the field of healthcare, maybe in your specialty, what would those three wishes be?
1: Wow, Um, big questions. I think top of the list would be, I would hope that we're able to embed research more in clinical practice. Uh, What I mean by that is that I think as healthcare professionals, I think all of us should have responsibility to be involved in some way in research research. Because um, it is with research that we can provide patients better treatment, more effective care. And I think, you know, um, currently, our day-to-day practice that is that we're trying to get on top of clinical pressures. Instead of putting in more resource, if we can come up with more innovative way of working, more research that improves the efficacy of therapy, that's a clever way of getting on top of clinical pressures. And I think even though whilst we're fighting fire all the time, we should remember that it is research and innovation that can really catapult us towards um, you know, the next chapter in treating patients. So that's, that's probably the primary. The other two then I think I'd reserve for, I think I can't not wish for physical activity being available for everyone. And as you mentioned earlier um, about playgrounds and equipment, We don't need sophisticated um, equipment, we don't need um, high tech uh, equipment, they're nice, they can help, but we don't need them for everyone to be involved in physical activity. And I think these will come about if we have um, guidance policies, um, focusing on environmental changes, infrastructure, and opportunities truly for everyone to be able to participate in physical activity um, so we can have a better health um, for all of us. And then I think the final wish would be related to patients again, because I think we need to listen more to what patient wants. I think all of us are patients at some stage, um, depending on what scenario it is we have our own um, agenda and I think we do need to listen to our patients um, a lot more and um, just to give you an example we need to have uh, be more proactive in this aspect so um, for rheumatology advances in practice um, um, I instigated um, providing lay summaries to all our manuscripts so that even though it is a scientific journal patients And non-specialist healthcare professionals are able to understand the manuscripts because they are written in in lay language. So it benefits um, everyone, including patients in public. So I think we all have responsibilities in engaging more with patients because ultimately in healthcare, um, as doctors and health professionals, we aim to benefit patients.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank you for taking uh, time out your day to talk to us, uh, Eileen. You've been an absolutely wonderful guest. You've enlightened us about rheumatology, your fascinating research, and thank you for everything that you do for for patients. Um, I'm going to be sending my friends to talk to you rather than me. It's been an absolute (laughs) pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed our chats.
0: Fantastic. Well... Folks, please check out our show notes and you can follow Eileen on Twitter using the handle at Dr. Eilin Tan. That's A-I-L-Y-N-T-A-N. At Dr Eilin Tan. And please consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. And check out all the great shows uh, in the EMJ archives. Please join us next week for another fantastic episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.